As Becky said, we are picking up our series on Daniel again. We've had a break for a couple of weeks. Um, it does feel like a little while ago that Phil last talked to us about Daniel chapter 4. But we have reached Daniel chapter 5. And I'm just going to work my way through the passage, reading bits and then stopping and commenting a little bit, just to see what it might mean for us today. So starting off in Daniel chapter 5, verse 1. King Belshazzar... Now that right away gives us a hint as to when this happened. We have historical records from Babylon and from the other uh, kingdoms of that time, the, the Persians and the Medes or the Medians. Um, we have got historical records that give us a fair bit of confidence that this was happening around about 60 years after Daniel and his friends were taken into exile into Babylon. It's about 20 years after Nebuchadnezzar, as Becky so eloquently put it, did a bit of, went a bit cow-like, went and chewed the cud like a senseless animal. So King Belshazzar is his successor. Now, why is there a 20-year gap? Daniel's a bit of a rubbish historian, right? Well, actually, Daniel isn't trying to record history. Actually, none of the so-called history books in the Bible are trying to record history in some objective fashion. What the Bible gives us and what Daniel is giving us is history as God recognizes it. It's giving us the history that God wants us to know about, his dealings with humanity throughout the first, what, if we go from Genesis through to when Jesus comes and then the early church gets set up by the New Testament, we're looking at around about 3,000 years worth of history. Edited highlights showing us what God wants us to know about his workings in the world. It would be a very, it would be even thicker than it is. I mean, some would say this is already big enough and the pages are very, very thin. But, so really this isn't history or not just history, it's also prophecy. It is God showing us his view of things. So King Belshazzar held a great feast for a thousand of his nobles and drank wine in their presence. Now there is some debate in the commentaries about exactly what this feast was. Some would say it's the new year feast. It could just be that King Belshazzar wanted to show off his, his wealth, his largesse, his brilliance to all of the nobles of his kingdom. Whatever it was, it was a thousand of his nobles. But it's about to take a, a turn for the worse. Because under the influence of the wine, Belshazzar gave orders to bring in the gold and silver vessels that his predecessor Nebuchadnezzar, now I'm just going to stop there. You're going to hear that several times throughout this passage. Predecessor. Daniel is deliberately taking Nebuchadnezzar, who he devoted three chapters to. And, you know, there were ups and downs. There was the times where uh, Nebuchadnezzar had that dream he couldn't interpret and he didn't tell anyone what, even what the dream was. And so we had that vision of that statue made up of multiple parts. And Daniel was able to tell him both the dream and what it meant. And from standing where we are, we know that it means that of all the kingdoms in the world, Jesus is going to set up his kingdom that is going to conquer all. I love that chapter. Mm -hmm. Chapter three, you've got the fiery furnace. 
Nebuchadnezzar trying to say, come on, you've got to worship this statue that I've made. And if you don't, you're going to burn. But what happens? The friends are set free. The friends go into the furnace, the furnace that was so hot that it killed the soldiers that threw them in. But they were able to walk around in it. And for a start, they were able to walk around in it and they were thrown in bound. Yeah? But then they saw a fourth person. And everybody goes, hang on, we only put three people in. Why is there a fourth person? And why does it look like a son of the gods? Now, I'll put my colours on the mast. I actually do believe that was a pre-incarnate Jesus who entered into that furnace and set them free and then kept them safe from the flames. After they put their faith on the line, they said, oh, king, our God can save us. But even if he doesn't, we will not worship your statue. They took a stand and God came through. Nebuchadnezzar then went a bit cow-like and when he came back to his senses, he kind of flirted with adding Yahweh, the God of Israel, to the group of gods that the Babylonians worshipped. But it seems like at the end of chapter 4, he's going further and he's saying, actually, the God of Israel, the God of my servant Belteshazzar, Daniel, is the most high God. He is the God of gods. He is the one who coordinates all the rulers of the world. He, took my, he gave me my kingdom. He took my kingdom away and he's given it back to me. So all of you honour Israel's God. That's Nebuchadnezzar. And through this, Daniel wants us to look at Belshazzar and compare. They watch out for that word predecessor. So Belshazzar gave orders to bring in the gold and silver vessels that his predecessor Nebuchadnezzar had taken from the temple in Jerusalem so that the king and his nobles, wives and concubines could drink from them. See, Nebuchadnezzar, yes, took the precious, holy vessels that were dedicated to the use of um, God's people in the temple. They were holy. They were set aside just for use in worshipping God. And Nebuchadnezzar took them because that's what conquering kings did in those days. They took the most precious holy artifacts and brought them in to say, look, we own you. But he left them there. And through his history of coming to see that Israel's God is the most high God, came to honour God. But Belshazzar treats them as common. The opposite of holy isn't always unholy. The opposite of holy can just be common, everyday use. He says, bring them in. And he asks for those by name. Why? Why does he say, bring in those things from Israel? I actually can't help but think that he knows Nebuchadnezzar's history and kind of wants to say, well, do you know what? I'm king now and I'll show this God what's what. So they brought in the gold vessels that had been taken from the temple, the house of God in Jerusalem, and the king and his nobles, wives and concubines drank from them. They drank the wine and praised their gods. They praised the Babylonian gods as they drank from the cup that was dedicated to the worship of Yahweh. They praised their gods, Bel, and all the others. But these gods are made of gold, and silver, bronze, iron, wood, and stone. That'll be important later on. So you see, they commit blasphemy. 
fundamentally. They said, you know what? Yes, I know that Israel's God is supposed to be a big deal. Nebuchadnezzar wrote that big letter 20 years ago. Whatever, I'll drink from it. Ha! I think Eddie, when he was speaking a couple of weeks ago, said that on his first Sunday in church, he tempted God. Boy, was Belshazzar tempting God. What's he going to do? At that moment, the fingers of a man's hand appeared and began writing on the plaster of the king's palace wall next to the lampstand. Picture it. Disembodied hand appears. I don't know whether it shone like the picture, but appears and starts writing in the plaster. They didn't have Adam's family back then, so they didn't know about thing. There was just this disembodied hand that started writing. As the king watched what the hand was, that was writing, his face turned pale and his thoughts so terrified him that he soiled himself and his knees knocked together. Now, my translation is the only translation that mentions soiling himself, so I don't know how, how accurate that is, in all honesty. Every other, I checked because I'd never noticed it before. Every other translation just says his knees knocked together. <laughs> he soiled himself. No, he soiled himself in my translation. Now, but this isn't written for comedy. It's easy, just because my translation mentions something that we tend to giggle at. You could treat it as comedy, but it isn't. This is horror. This is terror. This is what is happening. So the king shouted to bring in the mediums, Chaldeans and diviners. He said to these wise men of Babylon, whoever reads this inscription and gives me its interpretation will be clothed in purple, have a gold chain around his neck and have the third highest position in the kingdom. We've heard offers like this before in Daniel. This is kind of just a standard offer of a king to its trusted advisors. So all the king's wise men came in but none could read the inscription. We've seen this again in Daniel as well. We saw it when Nebuchadnezzar had the dream. We saw it in Daniel chapter one, when Daniel and his friends, after fasting the choicest of foods, actually exceeded and was more excellent than the others who were training at the same time. The advisors haven't got a blues clue. They don't know what it is. Commentators are a little bit divided about why it was that no one could read it or understand it, um, because they would, have they would have understood the Hebrew alphabet, because it was one of the languages of that region. But for whatever reason, they couldn't read the inscription or make its interpretation known to them. It's entirely possible, as Phil suggested about Daniel chapter 4, that they kind of knew what it meant, but they were too scared to say it. Maybe they were just hi hiding it a little bit, because they didn't want to say what it really is. But I don't think it is that necessarily because verse 9 says, King Belshazzar became even more terrified. His face turned pale and his nobles were bewildered. What are they going to do? Well, verse 10, because of the outcry of the king and his nobles, the queen came to the banquet hall. Now, actually, this is most likely the queen mother because the queen wouldn't have been able to talk to the king like this. It wasn't really the done thing. If you remember the book of Esther, Esther was one of the queens of the king of Persia. 
but she was terrified to go in and request that he um, put himself out on behalf of the people of Israel. Queens did not have the stature to be able to talk like she's about to with King Belshazzar. The other interesting thing is that this queen didn't seem to be invited to the banquet. She came to the banquet hall. I'm old enough to remember the queen mother, and I'm sorry, but the queen mother was wherever the queen was, in any public holiday, any public feast. Why wasn't she included? Again, I think it's all part of Belshazzar wanting to dust his hands of what Nebuchadnezzar had come to believe and come to practice and just live for himself and live for his own glory. The Queen Mum comes to the banquet hall. May the king live forever, she said. Don't let your thoughts terrify you or your face be pale. There is a man in your kingdom who has a spirit of the holy gods in him. Notice she's reminding him about Daniel. Daniel does not have the same stature he had 20 years earlier after his dealings with Nebuchadnezzar. He'd been sidelined. Daniel himself was not at this banquet. Now that might have been because this was not a holy banquet. The mention of concubines earlier on in the attendees would suggest that it was getting a bit raunchy and inappropriate. That's the sort of party that they brought the Lord's vessels into. This is why the Lord is so angry. There is a man in your kingdom who has a spirit of the holy gods in him. In the days of your predecessor, notice it, he was found to have insight, intelligence and wisdom, like the wisdom of the gods. Your predecessor, King Nebuchadnezzar, appointed him chief of the magicians, mediums, Chaldeans and diviners. Your own predecessor, laying it on thick. It's almost like she's saying, you're nothing compared to your predecessor. You aren't even half the man that he was, half the king, half the ruler. Your own predecessor, the king, did this because Daniel, she uses his Hebrew name. She uses the name that was given to him in his own land. She is giving Daniel an honor that not even Nebuchadnezzar gave him. Nebuchadnezzar called him Belteshazzar every single time, but she calls him Daniel. Your own predecessor, the king, did this because Daniel, the one he named Belteshazzar, was found to have an extraordinary spirit, knowledge and intelligence, and the ability to interpret dreams, explain riddles and solve problems. Therefore, summon Daniel, Hebrew name again, and he will give the interpretation. Then Daniel was brought before the king. The king said to him, are you Daniel, one of the Judean exiles that my predecessor, the king, brought from Judah? He's almost being a bit dismissive of Daniel. I mean, if you've called for Daniel and someone comes pretending to be Daniel, it's not going to be anyone else, is it? But he's trying to say, oh, so you're this Daniel, are you? Remember, at this point, Daniel's probably about 80 years old. It's easy to discredit the older people. It's easy to look down your nose at those that are past the prime of life. Are you Daniel? One of the Judean exiles? One of the nothings that my predecessor, the king, brought from Judah? Again, he's trying to diminish Nebuchadnezzar, what Nebuchadnezzar did and accomplished in his life. 
You know, you're one of those exiles. I've heard that you have a spirit of the gods in you and that insight, intelligence and extraordinary wisdom are found in you. Now the wise men and mediums were brought before me to read this inscription, but they could not give its interpretation. However, I've heard about you that you can give interpretations and solve problems. Therefore, if you can read this inscription and give me its interpretation, you will be clothed in purple, have a gold chain around your neck and have the third highest position in the kingdom. And it's just a little bit arrogant. It's just a little bit belittling, almost withering in its invitation for Daniel. But he still offers the same reward because he's publicly offered it. He can't go back on his word. Then Daniel answered the king. Notice Daniel speaks to Belshazzar very differently to Nebuchadnezzar. Nebuchadnezzar, when Daniel heard the dream that Nebuchadnezzar had had in chapter four, he heard it and said, oh my king, may this interpretation not be for you, but for your enemies. He was gracious. He was extending a chance to repent. And he even gave that recommendation to Nebuchadnezzar. Daniel answered the king, you may keep your gifts and give your rewards to someone else. Now we know later on that he does go and accept that reward. So why does he reject it here? Well, as much as anything else, I think Daniel's wanting to say, I'm not going to be bought. I'm not going to be bought and give you an interpretation that you want to hear, which is always the temptation when you're being paid for your advice. I'm a consultant and I am generally speaking paid to go into other companies and give them my advice. The temptation can be if I know that they're going in a certain way because I'm being paid and I want to continue my influence, I might just tell them what they want to hear. Daniel is having none of it. And I don't do that in my day job either. <laughs> I like to have a little thing that they call integrity where I say, well, no, I can see why you would think that, but you might want to do this. But I'm not here to defend myself. I'm here to talk about Daniel. <laughs> Daniel is like, no, go away. I don't want any of your rewards. But I will read the inscription for the king and I will let you know what it means. But first, he's going to give him a bit of his mind. See, your majesty, the most high God, gave sovereignty, greatness, glory and majesty to your predecessor, Nebuchadnezzar. Because of the greatness that God gave him, all peoples, nations and languages were terrified and fearful of him. He killed anyone he wanted and kept alive anyone he wanted. He exalted anyone he wanted and humbled anyone he wanted. But when his heart was exalted and his spirit became arrogant, he was deposed from his royal throne and his glory was taken from him. He was driven away from people. His mind was like an animal's. He lived with the wild donkeys. I can see why you thought donkey Eddie. He was fed grass like cattle. They're both in there. He was fed grass like cattle. He was kind of half donkey, half cow. And his body was drenched with dew from the sky until he acknowledged that the Most High God is ruler over human kingdoms and sets anyone he wants over them. Daniel just lifts up his leg because he's just about to put the boot in. But you, his successor Belshazzar, have not humbled your heart. 
even though you knew all this. You knew all this. This was public record. Nebuchadnezzar wrote a letter 20 years earlier going to all of the lands and the kingdoms that he had conquered, telling them what God had done and honouring Daniel's part in it as one of the messengers of God. Belshazzar knew it. He deliberately downplayed Daniel's role in the government. He deliberately excluded him from this feast. He was deliberately not wanting to go the way that Nebuchadnezzar went. Instead, you have exalted yourself against the Lord of the heavens. The vessels from his house were brought to you and as you and your nobles, wives and concubines drank wine from them, you praised the gods made of silver and gold, bronze, iron, wood and stone, which do not see or hear or understand. See, they took the holy vessels, the holy cups of God and used them to worship idols made by human hands. Idols that were dead, blind, deaf, mute, unintelligent, unable to think. But you have not glorified the God who holds your life breath in his hands. He's ignored the most high God who holds your life breath. The very stuff you breathe is in the hands of this God that you have rejected and who controls the whole course of your life. Therefore, he sent the hand and this writing was inscribed. And this is the writing that was inscribed. Mini, mini, tekel and parsin. Now they are referring to different weights and measures. There was the mina, there was the shekel, and there was a parsin or half probably half a shekel. But Daniel, in interpreting it, takes the verbs that are derived from these nouns. A little bit like how Google is the name of the, the kind of number one search engine. We don't talk about, I'm going to search on the internet for that anymore. We say, I'm going to Google that. Funnily enough, I even say that when I'm using one of Google's competitors. Let me Google that, bing.com. Other search engines exist. <laughs> It's a similar thing here. <laughs> it's a similar thing here. We've taken the names, but there are verb forms. There are verb versions of these names of weights and measures. This is the interpretation of the message. Many, or many, means that God has numbered the days of your kingdom and brought it to an end. Peckle means that you have been weighed on the balance and found deficient. Other translations talk about you've been weighed and found wanting. Perez means that your kingdom has been divided in the same way that Parsin is half a shekel. Your kingdom is being divided and given to the Medes and Persians. It's possible there's a play on words here as well. Perez sounding like Persian. This is, the, this is the judgment of God upon Belshazzar for his arrogance and his use of holy things for common and profane ends. 
So what's Belshazzar going to do? Belshazzar gave an order and they clothed Daniel in purple, placed a gold chain around his neck and issued a proclamation concerning him that he should be the third ruler in the kingdom. Now, one of my commentaries I was reading suggests that actually he might be being a little bit sarcastic here because he's being told that your kingdom is going to be taken away from you right away. But yeah, you might as well be third in the kingdom. It's not going to last very long. <laughs> now, I, I want to ask a question. Now, I don't know if I'm going to give a definitive answer, but could Belshazzar have repented? Could he have done? This judgment sounds pretty final. I think God knew that he absolutely would not. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah, and God's foreknowledge about it was in no doubt whatsoever. I think, and the reason I care about this is because it speaks to the character of God. I think there is implicit in the way that Daniel couches it by reminding him, look, Nebuchadnezzar repented and was returned back. I think there was a sense in which he's kind of saying, look, even now you might be able to. This has appeared. It's serious. You know how serious it is. You can feel the weight of it when you didn't even know what these words meant. You were terrified. But turn. I can't help but think of Hezekiah and Isaiah in 2 Kings chapter 20, I think it is, where Isaiah is sent to Hezekiah and says, sorry, this illness will end in death. You will die and not live. And Hezekiah throws himself before the Lord and says, Lord, please, I've got so much to do. And Isaiah hasn't even left the courtyard when God turns him around and says, right, tell him, because you've tumbled yourself before me, you've got 15 more years. There was nothing in Isaiah's message that says he could humble himself and that his death would not happen. But we see again and again, David, when he'd sinned with Bathsheba, when the judgment from Nathan is given, again, no hint of repentance possible. David's instinct is, well, I'm going to pray and fast because maybe God will change his mind and not kill my baby, not kill my son. Now, in that instance, God didn't change his mind. In Hezekiah's instance, God did seemingly change his mind and relent. It's possible that Belshazzar could have repented, but his heart was so hardened, so lost, that he wasn't going to do that. That very night, Belshazzar, the king of the Chaldeans, was killed, and Darius the Mede received the kingdom at the age of 62. That's very specific. It's the only age that's mentioned in the whole book of Daniel. And really what it's doing is it's harking back to the beginning of the exile. See, Darius the Mede was born the year that Israel was taken to Babylon. First time. First time. For the first lot, the lot that Daniel was included in the lot that Jeremiah prophesied about and said, you will be taken into exile for 70 years. Now, there are different perspectives on what exactly that means. John Goldingay talks about how um, this means that the seeds of the downfall of Nebuchadnezzar's kingdom was sown at the beginning of the exile. Effectively, 
You took the vessels from their temple. Yes, you didn't do anything bad with them. You left them kind of in a place where you weren't, and God worked with you. But it's that that ultimately brought an end to your kingdom, this kingdom of Babylon, and handed it to the Medes and the Persians. There's another guy, Bob Letham, who um, talks and picks up on the fact that it is under Darius, who may also be the same as King Cyrus in the book of Ezra. It was King Cyrus, possibly also Darius. Commentators are a bit confused. Not confused, they have different opinions. Individual commentators have their views. But if Darius is Cyrus, and Cyrus is the one who actually leads in to Israel going back and rebuilding the towns, rebuilding the temple, re-establishing the, the kingdom within the land of Israel. What that means then is that in Judah's darkest days, when fortunes were at the lowest ebb and they were taken into exile, there was born the man who would instigate its restoration. Even in its darkest time, God had put in place what was gonna bring them back. And I'm sorry, but we can apply that to our lives. We all have dark times. We all have times when it feels like the world stops turning. When it feels like we have no hope left. But we can be confident because of the character and nature of our God that he has already got an answer for it. Amen? Now, to a certain extent, we could get to the end of all that and say, well, so what? Nice history lesson, thanks John, but what does it mean? Well, I think there's a couple of bits I wanna pick up. One is that there is a sobriety here that we don't like to dwell on. I think I can count on precisely maybe one finger how often I've spoken explicitly and solely on the judgment of God. I used to think about it an awful lot more before I started preaching because I lived in fear of it. But there is such a thing as judgment. There really is. The book of Hebrews, it lists it as one of the elementary things that we are supposed to learn about when we come into Christian faith. So there is judgment. And those who lived the number of their days without living to God's glory will receive the same judgment Belshazzar had. Meany, meany, tekel, parson. Weighed and found wanting, your days are numbered, is declared over every person, living and dead, were it not for Christ. Yes. Praising. See, Jesus changed everything relating to God's judgment. I hope you know this, because not a lot, some, not a lot, some Christians read stories like this and get very, very serious and say, see, if you don't repent, this will happen to you. That isn't the message we're supposed to take from this, solely, because Jesus changed everything. Sure. See, when Jesus came, he came proclaiming, yes, judgment sort of but he came proclaiming the day of the lord's favor the very first thing jesus reads publicly in the scroll that we're told about in the gospels is isaiah 61 the spirit of the sovereign lord is upon me because he has anointed me to preach good news yes. to the poor 
to those that are enslaved, to those that are oppressed, liberation and freedom, the day of the Lord's favour. Now Isaiah goes on to say the year of the judgment of our God. Jesus doesn't go there. He stops at the day of God's favour. Because what Jesus does, he brings us into that era of God's favour declared across the earth. Did you know that? He lived and served, and before dying, he took our sin upon himself. That sin that would have deserved, rightly and justly, the judgment of God for the way that we did not live to, toward him, he takes it on his shoulders. Amen. We thought about this last week when we were looking at Easter. And he takes it to the grave. He defeated the powers behind the idols and the gods of old. Those gods of gold, silver, wood, stone and iron that Belshazzar was worshipping. Jesus disarms them. Because there are spiritual principalities behind each one of them. Jesus says, no, you're done. My kingdom is here. So that we can be raised to new life as he is raised back to life on Easter Sunday. You see, Jesus has hit the pause button on God's judgment. It's still there. Isaiah 61 about the year of the Lord's judgment is still in the word of God. But because of everything Jesus did, he has hit the pause button on it. We each have one life in which to decide how we're going to respond to Jesus. And whether we hear many, many tekel pass and declared over our lives, 100% depends on what we do with Jesus. Amen? So we have one life in which to decide how we're going to respond to Jesus. And one day he is going to return and the final judgment will be given. He's going to hit that pause button again. But 2 Peter 3 verse 9. Do not think that the Lord is slow, as some understand slowness. To the Lord, a day is as a thousand years and a thousand years as a day. He is being patient with us so that, what? All may repent and find life. Jesus is deliberately delaying his return to give opportunity and space for everyone on this planet to repent. He doesn't want a single one to perish. said it before, but whether the judgment of meany, meany, tackle, passing stands over each of us and of our friends and neighbours, because I'm pretty sure that in here, each one of us has settled how we're going to respond to Jesus. I've seen it on your faces as we were worshipping earlier. Whether the judgment of meany, meany, tackle, passing stands over our friends and neighbours is now determined by how they respond to Jesus. Will we humble ourselves, admit our need of him and find forgiveness and life in him? The heart and the love of God longs for this. I can see 40 people on the field across the way there. Rough estimate. I know that in each house around this place, I know that in the people that I'm going to go to the supermarket later on and interact with and see them going about their daily lives, the heart of God is that they would know 
that he wants them to find life. That they will humble themselves, admit their need of him, and then find forgiveness and life. Will we, will they, turn from our idols that promise so much, but are really deaf, blind, mute, and dead? You may have bowed the knee before Jesus and settled that in your heart, but there are probably still idols that tempt you away at times. Might be power, might be money, might be sex, might be ambition, might be glory. But those things can try and turn your head away. Will we turn our head back to Jesus whenever they do that? He'll wipe it clean straight away. We started this morning with a welcome, with an invitation to come and buy without cost. And that invitation still stands. Or will we continue to live as a proud native of Babylon, believing that we'll have what it takes when it really matters? God's heart is that all, and I mean all, would turn and find life. For those of us that have turned and found life in his name, he's got another invite for us today. He's inviting us to work with him, to labour with him in holding this offer out to the world. God could cause another hand to write on the wall. If someone really needed it, he could do it. His much more normal way of doing it is to send you and me out into the world. To shine as his lights in a dark universe that as Eddie talked about this morning, will not be extinguished by the dark. Paul talks in Philippians 2 about how we are supposed to shine like stars by letting our good deeds shine before men. Not that we're saved by good deeds, we know that. We're saved by grace through faith so that we can do good works. We're saved for good works that will stir up curiosity, stir up hunger as we are salt and light out in the world. Those that don't yet know that many, many tackle and passing is written over their lives can get a hint that there is a God in heaven who wants them. God's inviting us to be sent ones today. He's inviting Trinity Life to be an apostolic people sent to hold out the hope of life. Are we ready? I'm not. For all that I've moved here and helped get this church started, I still have fears. I still have insecurities. We were just talking over coffee. I will happily talk to someone of another faith and we can talk and compare about how our faiths are different because we've kind of broken that thing of, well, at least there's something more than science tells us about. But if I'm face to face with a hardcore atheist, I will feel it more difficult to mention my faith to them. Always remember that they also are people of faith. Yeah. Because they do not have all of the facts they claim to have. Absolutely. 
Absolutely. No, but, <laughs> but as Daniel was trained up in the way of the Chaldeans and the magicians, I've been trained up in the ways of the materialist in the West. And it feels more costly to go against it. But you know what? We need to. And this isn't a finger wagging. This is an invitation to a great adventure. This is an invitation to see more stories like Eddie's. Eddie shared his story two weeks ago. It's on the podcast. He tempted God. And God answered. We get to be a part of that. Should we pray? And then we're going to worship. Well, Jesus, I want to thank you for your word. I want to thank you that your word does not hide any difficult truths from us. Lord, it tells us exactly what we need to hear. In your word, Lord, is everything we need to know for life and godliness and righteousness and grace and peace and mercy. Yeah. Lord, thank you that in your word you included this story of King Belshazzar to show us the stakes that are at play. Lord, I want to thank you that you have saved each and every one of us in this room from, from the fate that Belshazzar had. Lord, you have forgiven us, you have made us holy, you have made us righteous, not because of anything we've done, but because we have trusted in what your son did on the cross. Lord Jesus, I want to thank you that you have brought us in to the family of God. But not just for ourselves, although that would be amazing enough, you've brought us into the family of God so that we can reach out to others who also need to come into your family. Lord, as I as I think about everything I deserve, but everything I've now received. Lord, I pray that you would motivate my heart to speak more about the gospel. Yes. Lord, I pray that you would motivate my heart to share more of the goodness that you have done in my life. Not in some unreal, fancy-schmancy way that hides the challenges. No, Lord God, it is through the challenges, through the difficulties that we see your faithfulness. So, Lord, would you help us to go, warts and all, challenges and all, knowing that you have already won the victory. Knowing, Lord God, that we live in a season when you are holding out your welcome to a world to believe in you and find life in your name. Amen. Lord, would you make us more conscious of the strength and openness of your welcome than the darkness of the world outside? Lord, would you give us the confidence and the faith that you go with us? So that, Lord God, that judgment of meanie, meanie, tackle and passing is ultimately declared over as few people as possible. Lord, send us out with a passion for those who need you. Help us extend your grace in Jesus' name. Amen.